This time, we're taking a look at HBO's latest sensation, The Last of Us. And along the way, we ask, is Pedro Pascal just TV daddy now? Does this finally mark a turning point for video game adaptations? And what should we expect from future seasons? Endure and survive on this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. My normal co-host, Sean Culp, is uh, off on adventures right now. But with me today, talking The Last of Us, is my friend and neighbor, Mr. Dan Corwin. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Happy to be here. Let's uh, let's get down to brass tacks, huh? Yeah, we're like I mentioned in the intro, we are discussing HBO's The Last of Us, and... Right off the bat, I'm going to lead off with a spoiler warning. We're going to get into some things that were shown in season one of the show. We're also going to talk about things that were shown in the first game, uh, the second game, Last of Us Part Two, and probably the DLC left behind. So just a heads up, there's going to be some spoilers. So if you aren't ready for that, maybe uh, maybe take a step back on this episode. <laughs> so let's get into it right away. Dan, what is your history with The Last of Us? We've talked about it pretty extensively between the two of us you actually have a pretty fun interesting story when it comes to playing the first game yeah yeah so uh arguably last of us is probably one of my favorite games i've ever played uh i'm a sucker for you know story driven kind of linear content like this and last of us kind of redefined in my mind like what a good video game story could be uh you know obviously with naughty dogs lineage and uncharted and so forth even back to jack and daxter uh you know they're, they're always pretty good at crafting good stories but yeah uh, last, last of us won. So I was, well, it was 2013. It came out. I want to say, does that yeah. sound right? Yeah. So I, I can't remember how old I was. I was working, whatever, uh, came out on my birthday and actually the second one did too, which was pretty nice. Uh, and me and my brother rented it from a local video store and sat down the nights of my birthday and started playing it. I took the next day off and we literally played until about four in the morning, stopped and took a nap for like two hours and then woke up and played the entire rest of the next day. So we beat the game in pretty much one sitting minus sleeping. So uh, fun experience, you know, played the, uh, the remaster on PS five. That one was really good. Last of us two, again, also came out my birthday, took like two days off surrounding it and just pounded through that game in probably like three days. So Huge fan of the series, uh, love the games, love the gameplay arc, especially going from one to two and kind of the changes and the different move sets and combat mechanics and so forth. Uh, so, uh, you know, happy to be here and uh, talk about arguably one of my favorite video game series ever made. You're probably the biggest gamer I know. I mean, you buy all these great new AAA games when they come out, they have releases, uh, but for some reason, like The Last of Us has just had this staying power, like we're we're... Over, like 10 years now from the first game came out there's been obviously the sequel the great dlc but is are there moments from the game series that have kind of stood out to you like either story moments gameplay sections dialogues characters that are just like wow like i would play a whole game that's based on this character or if there was a whole game that was just on this game mechanic i'm all in for it 
Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, in, in the first game, there's there's a lot of kind of standout moments, and mostly just because I remember it because I played the, the the remake on PS5 so recently. But I think the first time that you fight that group of like clickers, and uh, it's it's got to be like a it's, it's a school or a shopping mall or something, and there's like seven of them. Up until that point, you've maybe had to fight like one or two at a time, and then they drop you in this room as Ellie, and there's like seven of them walking around. You got to sneak around and kind of stealth kill them and everything. And uh, so that part was a was a huge standout, both on my first play through as well as my most recent playthrough uh the part with the giraffe uh when, when they were going through the university uh, that always gets me it's kind of like an emotional gut punch uh anything to do with bill really is like a highlight for me just the comedic effort of it uh, the banter between him and ellie and then you know subsequently kind of the tragedy at the end of that which i'm sure we'll get into uh, pretty much everything about the first game is, is, is kind of standout memories for me, of course, the ending, which we can talk about. But then two, I, I think just in general, the gameplay sequences in two where it really kind of lets you explore like a larger open area. And then it had almost these like side objectives, like go to the bank and that's where you get the shotgun. And then like you fight all the clickers in each of the different houses and you're kind of clearing them out house by house, street by street, like reminds me of like World War II, like clearing houses, like moving through France and Germany and so forth. Uh, so pretty much any of the gameplay mechanics that they have from two are really stand out for me. I just think they, the way they refine the combat to make it feel more fluid and visceral, uh, there's not many games that I can play that will make me wince when you're fighting other characters, but last of us is one of them. I remember playing the second one and like audibly gasping at the points when Ellie gets in for her like takedown moves and whatnot. And it's, it's just, it's so gory and brutal and everyone's like yelling and screaming as you're shooting them, which makes it just way too personal. And, and it really kind of like throws you for a loop, but other standout moments from two, I think, you know, Obviously, uh, you know, spoilers again, everybody, but when Joel dies, I, that was kind of like a gut punch to me. Like, I, I felt like I was betrayed, like my father just left me. And, <laughs> and, and then uh, pr pretty much all of Ellie's arc, you know, I know a lot of people hate on the second game for its like, quote unquote, woke agenda. You know, there's uh, trans representation in it. There's uh, many queer characters, but I, I think it all fits really well. And watching Ellie's arc of revenge and then subsequently Abby's arc of revenge and how she kind of gets to the point where it leads into Joel's death and beyond. Uh, all of those were, you know, great moments for me. And then uh, my favorite part of the second game, uh, aside from all kind of the emotional gut punches, which really last of us part two, for those of you who haven't played it, uh, is really just an exercise in misery. Uh, like I, I don't think I would ever say that about a game that I like so much, but it, it is a completely miserable experience to play that game emotionally. Uh, but at the very end of that game, there's a part where, Ellie's on the warpath and she shows up in California and she's like a grizzled like combat veteran now she's got like a thousand yards there going on and everything and they really just like let you loose they give you all of these like you know you get like a bunch of machine guns and like tons of ammo and there's just guys everywhere looking for you and it's fantastic because up until that point at least when I was playing it on hard you're really kind of like watching your bullets, you're crafting ammunition very carefully, you're utilizing your resources to their fullest extent and then it drops you in California and it's like go on the warpath and it's fantastic. You could just let loose with all the combat mechanics, really explore all the bits and pieces of it and, uh, you know, really get a feel for how the developers want you to play. Like for example, on easy mode or something like that. I, yeah, a hundred percent agree with everything you're saying. Like, I think the best narrative stories are the ones that make you feel 
that emotion at the rawest form. Like you're not supposed to enjoy the violence in in either of the games. Like it's it's brutal. It's you hear people scream like you're saying these death throws. You see severed limbs on the ground. You're not supposed to enjoy the violence that you're a part of. It's supposed to like this is the reality of the world that is decimated by this fungal pandemic. And this is just what people have to do to survive. It is a horrible reality, but it's it makes for great gameplay, but also memorable gameplay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like I I would I, I don't think I could ever recommend a game that I hated so much as I was playing it, but I loved it so much when I was done with it. Like I, I kept wanting to see the next scene, but it's just it's so miserable in terms of like the depths of despair that people go into and the. The, well, I wouldn't even say gratuitous because it's not gratuitous. It's like realistic, authentic interpretations of violence. And it just it's its really like a gut punch to watch it. It's arguably the most realistic deaths I've ever seen in video games. And then an abundance of Wilhelm screams that happen. <laughs> Agreed. It's uh, And I'm with you, too, about the whole bait and switch about Joel being killed in the second game. Because if you remember, like all the, the marketing and the trailers that came out beforehand, Joel was front and center in a lot of those. So when it, when he was killed... It felt like the rug was being pulled out from under us as a game as gamers. I remember leading up to that game coming out uh, there. I went on like media silence because I was so excited to play it. And I don't do that for anything. Usually I know like everything that happens in a game before it even comes out. And I do buy a lot of video games. Rest in peace, bank account. But <laughs> uh, e- either way, I mean, like leading up to it, I, I, I literally think like 45 days before it came out, I, I completely turned myself off to everything. Like I didn't watch any of the previews. I didn't read any articles about it. And I especially stayed away from the internet after like right before I went media silent, I read some things online where people are saying that they're spoiling the game and a bunch of people are upset about it for X, Y, and Z reasons, but like be careful on the internet basically. So I'm also a voracious Redditor and I basically turned off Reddit for like an entire month, which is like pulling your your life support off so uh I, I was very like just kind of nervous and anticipating it coming out and then again like took the days off had to happen to be around my birthday i'd like all these people call me on my birthday happy birthday you want to go out and get a drink or whatnot no i want to stay at home and play last of us part two thank you very much so yeah kind of a top-down overview of our experiences playing playing the game series but for those that are unfamiliar with the games or the show which I don't know how you've missed it. It's probably been the biggest media sensation in 2023 so far. Uh, So The Last of Us is set 20 years after a fungal pandemic, not a viral pandemic, fungal, has just completely decimated the United States. And all that remains of humanity are in these little pockets of civilization called quarantine zones spread throughout the United States. And there's a old, grizzled, I guess basically looks like old piece of asphalt smuggler by the name of Joel is task of bringing a 14 year old girl across the country because surprise, surprise, she's somehow immune to the infection that is turning people into these monstrous mushroom looking zombie like creatures. I don't say zombies are not zombies. The creators are very clear that they are not zombies that can just transmit this infection through Gosh, seems like any means really. It, it is a it's terrifying to to think about the journey that they have to go on from Boston all the way out to Utah or whatever it is they wind up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a heck of a story. Uh, it it plays off very tropey and video gamey at first, but Naughty Dog does an excellent job at making you think that you're playing a video game and then realize that you're playing like an Oscar worthy movie in the end. And I think all of this kind of starts. 
well not think i mean all this does start with naughty dog and the creator of the game big head honcho creative director has done a lot of work for naughty dog neil Druckmann, definitely probably the best narrative mind in games out there right now you know a couple of people probably above him but it's a, it's a very select group of people that can craft a narrative as well as neil Druckmann can and he's been doing this for years the last of us was his baby part two was his baby and he got involved with the creation of the show with craig mazin who if that name is unfamiliar with you you surely have seen chernobyl it's probably his seminal work and just completely blew everybody away i know chernobyl is one of those shows where i make an annual viewing of it because it's just so good oh yeah it just has such deep resonant themes about how you know governments will do anything they can and kill whoever they can just to make themselves look good (laughs) the decimeter reads 4,000 but sir it only goes up to (laughs) 4,000 oh man (laughs) I got such bad memories watching that for the first time (laughs) but we're not talking Chernobyl we could go on for hours about Chernobyl we're talking the last of us so yeah Craig Mazin Fresh off of Chernobyl, once a new project with HBO, he keys in on The Last of Us, brings on Neil Druckmann, and from there, like I think the series was announced in 2020, and there was all kinds of speculation about who they were wanting casting. Um, my personal thought for Joel, I wanted uh, Nikolaj Kolster uh, Waldau from uh, Game of Thrones. He was Jamie Lannister. Definitely looks the part of Joel. Um, definitely could have played Joel. Not sure on his American accent. I think he's Danish, so sometimes a bit of the Danish sneaks in. You know, it's like Kevin Costner trying to play a British person, inevitably his Kentucky accent or wherever he's from is just going to leak out at some point. Um, but was not disappointed at all with the casting of Pedro Pascal. No, he was uh, a great pick. I remember when they first, so Pedro Pascal was one of those names, at least for me, where like all I really knew him from was from the Mandalorian and everyone was like gushing about him all the time when the Mandalorian first started coming out. And I was like, who is this? Like this guy's in like everything, but he's always behind a mask. And then recently there's like, uh, what's that movie with Nicolas Cage where he's the, the drug kingpin. That would be the unbearable weight of massive talent. Yeah. So like then he's in that, then he's in last of us. He's obviously in a Mandalorian again. So like this guy came out of nowhere and he is just like fan, at least for me. And, and he's just fantastic. Like he, he has very good gravitas about him. Uh, he can play kind of a variety of different roles very well, all the way from like, you know, well, <laughs> this is kind of a bad example, but grizzled bounty hunter to grizzled like apocalypse survivor. <laughs> yeah. Pedro Pascal is just television daddy now. Like he's just playing, you know, babysitter daddy in two different universes now. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're almost done with the third season of the Mandalorian at the time we're recording. And he's just doing the same thing he was doing in the first season. And it's still amazing. Don't get me wrong love the Mandalorian but again it's and Pedro Pascal was a, a yeah again amazing choice definitely loved him on Narcos Game of Thrones you know when he's not getting his head crushed in by the mountain was fantastic in his season so all around great choice I forgot about Narcos <laughs> <laughs> definitely worth checking out it is a show you got to pay attention to if you don't speak Spanish um, I took four years of high school Spanish and I don't remember any of it so yeah I had to watch with subtitles on <laughs> Um, but also running, uh, you know, conversely with the speculation of who they're casting for Joel, everybody, it seemed like that looked young or waifish was kind of throwing their hat into the ring as to like being cast for Ellie. And Bella Ramsey was somebody who I was not expecting to be cast for this role. But after watching her in nine episodes, there is nobody else that could have played this role like she did. 
completely agreed. Uh, going into it, I was really kind of crossing my fingers that they were going to cast Ashley Johnson in it. But, you know, she's a little bit older looking, so that's probably tough given Ellie's supposed to be like 13 and Bella is what, 18, 19? Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but either way, like going into it, I was a little skeptical. Like she doesn't quite look like Ellie. Um, I, I think at this point, like, is, is it pretty well known that Ellie was like modeled after Ellen Page when they made the first game? I think so. Yeah. So, so like, doesn't really look too much like Ellie, but, uh, after watching the episodes, like, holy cow. Yeah. There, there is no other Ellie than Bella Ramsey. And because of the way that she's going to age between now and the second season, both in universe and as a real woman uh I, I think it'll go over well uh, you know as she grows then the character can grow with it and you'll be able to see that you know physical transformation of ellie from small kind of helpless girl into like grizzled awful human being <laughs> i know there are people that are suggesting she could be recast for the second season i honest to god will riot if she is recast for the second season they should not do it i think having her like you're saying that natural progression and age be a part of the show is going to be so important for how people connect to the episodes and what is going to happen in future seasons. Well, and, and as like uh, a personality style, uh, Bella is Ellie. I mean, from the snarkicism to uh, being tender and loving all the way to kind of having this more brutal side as they get into a little closer towards the end of the show. And of course, in the games, uh, she really like embodies that character perfectly. So uh, well done, HBO. Yeah. And for those fans who are familiar with the game, you know that they filled out this season with basically every supporting character similar to like a Game of Thrones season. So we've got uh, Gabriel Luna as Tommy plays Joel's brother. Love Gabriel Luna. He's a personal favorite of mine. I loved him in Terminator Dark Fate. He was absolutely menacing in that movie. Got Nico Parker as Sarah, Joel's daughter, who unfortunately is killed in the very first 20 minutes of the show and just further makes everybody just weep and cry. I know I know my wife certainly cried watching that. I know I bawled my eyes out. Um, also, too, we've got some actors from the original game returning for the series. Merle Dandridge, who played Marlene in the original game, is back as Marlene, which is awesome, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, also got Troy Baker, I should say the legendary Troy Baker, because he's in literally every video game ever made, <laughs> either in voice form or performance capture. He played Joel originally, was back as James, I think, in the eighth episode, who was kind of David's underling. And then also the original actress for Ellie, Ashley Johnson, came back as Anna, Ellie's mother, in the final episode. So a lot of nice connections that we've got to the original series. Uh, we'll kind of breeze through the rest of this cast list here. We got Anna Torv from Netflix's Mindhunter as Tess. Uh, Nick Offerman uh, kind of showing off his dramatic chops a bit as Bill was not expecting Nick Offerman to turn in this kind of performance. But my God, I hope he wins an Emmy for this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Best episode of TV I've seen in years. <laughs> uh, we uh, we affectionately call that the last of up yeah. around here. <laughs> Uh, also in that episode, we got Murley, uh, Murray Bartlett as Frank, uh, kind of a throwaway character from the first game, only mentioned in passing, but his story and character definitely expanded for the show. Um, and we've got Lamar Johnson as Henry and Kevon Woodard as Sam, the brother combo who show up, I think, in the what is it, the fourth and fifth episodes of the series, um, and definitely one of the more heartbreaking sequences when 
uh, Sam is infected and Henry has to kill him. I was bawling my eyes out, and uh, for some reason I decided to watch that episode twice because I am just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> the Last of Us will do that to you. <laughs> also, some original characters, too. Um, we got Melanie Linsky as Kathleen, who is somehow like up there with David in terms of just being awful and willing to kill people and just basically turns Kansas City into a complete war zone during her reign, throwing off Fedra there. Um, I forgot to mention Jeffrey Pierce, original actor from the game, played Tommy, back as Perry, who uh, famously gets his head ripped off by the bloater um, in the Kansas City episodes. (laughs) Yeah, that was a rough one. Um, Also in the seventh episode, left behind Storm Reed as Riley, Ellie's best friend, uh, pre all of the uh cross-country adventures and then finally in the somehow i don't know how they pulled this off they made this guy the worst possible version of him than they could have for the game it was scott shepherd as david the cannibalistic cult leader uh turned a child pedophile yeah i don't know how they did it they somehow made him so much worse for the show makes me shiver just thinking about him he was already bad in the game but they they just made him so much more creepy they really leaned into the whole kid side of it and it was oh like i feel like i need to go take a shower after this now (laughs) yeah it's uh that episode is just one of those things like it's it's such a memorable section from the game because it is the only time in the main game where you're playing as ellie so there's so much that like, you can't do as Joel. I mean, or there's so much that you can't do as Ellie that you normally can do as Joel. Like, you don't have the same crafting speed. You don't have the same health. Uh, you can only carry, I think, a couple of weapons. And you you just don't have that strength that Joel has to just barrel his way through all of these enemies. And to see Ellie locked up and vulnerable and still find a way to get out is just, oh, it's such a great episode. I could go on about it. Yeah, that that part in the game is especially like kind of poignant just because of the fact that you haven't really played. But I, I think there there might have been a, a part in the beginning where you walk as Ellie for like five minutes or something like that, but nothing of substance, at least unless my memory just is leading me down the wrong path. But when, yeah, when, when you play as Ellie in that part, yeah, it, it's completely different character, completely different inventory, completely different skill system. Like it's it's just it kind of like throws you back to square one, and it really makes you feel like you're playing as Ellie and you're alone and you're having to like survive and basically try to find medicine to help Joel at that point who's has an infection and gets sick and whatnot. Yeah. For, for us as you know, huge fans of the game, I was amazed at how much they retained every single beat from the game and translated it into the show. It was, it was incredible. I mean, I, I don't know how they did it because at least the first game when you play the original PS3 version, like it feels like a video game aside from there just being an an incredible story and really kind of driving you forward to hit that next plot point. Uh, But, you know, clearly like time has helped them kind of refine the gameplay mechanics and kind of make it better. And, and watching them iterate all the way through, including the show on, on basically leading these beat by beat points from the video game and turning that into watchable TV instead of just like a kill fest for 10 hours or whatever it is. Uh, very fine job. So not only is it nostalgic, but it also kind of hits the important story beats. And as I'm sure we'll talk about later, expands on certain things that either weren't necessarily covered in full in the game or otherwise uh, kind of recast some of that information in a different light uh, that really worked out well in pretty much every circumstance that they did it. Well, and it's a video game to shows. And I know people are upset, like, well, there's not a lot of action. It's like, well, this is The Last of Us. It's not The Walking Dead. 
And the reason why I think The Walking Dead went off the rails was so many episodes were dedicated to an action sequence or killing walkers or some type of, you know, set piece, actiony set piece that was all kind of building that it was just exhausting to watch. It was the reason I tuned out of watching that show. And you you can't have every single episode be action, action, action. You can have some self-contained pieces like in the in the very first episode we have you know scenes of the outbreak initially happening and of course joel's daughter dying and at the end of that episode you have the violence that joel inflicts on the fedra soldier to ensure their escape so you have it retains that that violence and the action gameplay we know from the original game but it doesn't rely on it to make it a good story yeah, it, it compresses the action, at least this is the way that I think of it. It compresses all the action bits from the game into the most uh, impactful moments of violence. And like, yeah, but, but Walking Dead wishes it could be The Last of Us. That's all I have to say on that that part. <laughs> and I know there were some people that were kind of confused as to terms like, well, why change this? Why change that? And I know, like, especially the, the third episode where we meet Bill... And Frank, that was a major change from the game. It was not something that I was expecting to see. I mean, in in the game, I mean, it's similar circumstances. Joel and Ellie arrive in this town. It's booby trapped as all kinds of of sorted, you know, death traps that only somebody who thinks about this all day would finally has an opportunity to build them, which is horrifying. Um, but it's in the game we're introduced to Bill in a really cool way. He chops off an infected's head to save Joel. And then, like you were mentioning, we get that great banter between Ellie and Bill throughout that section of gameplay that I wish we had gotten in the show. But how do you and how do you feel about them changing that to make from this grand action sequence to kind of the shrunken down love story between two survivors? Yeah. So, so you know, I, there are pieces of the game that I miss, like most importantly, the banter between Ellie and Bill, just because. Uh, at least in the, and they, they kind of do this in the show too, but to, to a greater extent in the game, they really paint Bill to be this like old curmudgeon and he's just angry at the world. And uh, you don't really know why as you're playing the game, other than he's a survivor and he's just kind of angry and he's this kind of portly man that's just hanging out in this town. So I, I miss some of that aspect of it and some of the more curmudgeon Bill, but you certainly get a little bit of that at the beginning of that episode with Bill and Frank, where you can kind of see the prepper nature of Bill and uh, kind of his like, you know, uh, damn the world kind of attitude. Uh, but I will say this, uh, you know, basically, I, I while I would have liked bits and pieces from the game to have manifested in that Bill and Frank episode, I can't see them doing it any other way than the way that they did it. The, the whole idea of how Bill became the Bill that Joel knows uh, and getting that context for Bill and Frank, which they touch on a brief little bit in the game. And it's a little different. And I'll, I'll let Chris go into that. Uh, but manifesting that love story and watching their interaction and then understanding then, you know, which you kind of have to extrapolate out of the show, but understanding that's why Bill became the curmudgeon that he is in the game and kind of holding himself up in this town with all the traps and everything. It, it just it really builds Bill as a character and it helps you understand the context of his past and how he got to his, fu- his, his current present or future. And I, I, like, again, I, I can't see them doing it any other way. I, I think it was fantastic TV. And it really kind of sets up what you see in future relationships in other episodes. You see a different dynamic play out with Henry and Sam, where that Henry is doing whatever he can to protect his brother. I mean, and, and that's another change from the game. Like Sam in the game is not sick. 
Sam in the show has leukemia, and Henry is doing whatever he can to make sure he can get medication for his brother. And he's do- and yes, he did a horrible thing by betraying Kathleen's brother and ensuring him a- an early death. But he was doing what he could to protect his brother. And and Joel's rampage at the end of the in the final episode to quote unquote save Ellie from be- her brain being scooped out and made into a cure. Like that's another dynamic of Bill and Frank's relationship that you know, Bill at the end like doesn't cannot fathom a world where his partner is gone, his partner in everything, his partner in love, his partner in survival. He cannot be a part of a world where that person isn't there. So he decides to go out with them knowing he fulfilled what he was trying to do. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I I never really put two and two together on that. That really Bill and Frank's relationship and all the different components of it over the course of that episode then manifest through other characters' relationships. So it really helps you again, like like you said, understand at the end like the extent that people will go in, in order to do things for love. And you know I, I think that's kind of like the synopsis at the end that made this really hard, I guess, for people that haven't played the game or know anything about the story. It, it, like I, I know tons of friends of mine who were like, they hated the ending of that, of the show. They, they absolutely hated it and they couldn't understand why. And then you have to kind of explain to them, well, like, you know, leading up until this point, you know, they, they've traveled all the way across the country with each other. And like, this is now his surrogate daughter and, and he has no choice. He has to do what he thinks is best selfish or otherwise to, to basically save the relationship that he has joel can't bear the loss of another person in his life at this point in time and this is why i think uh, pedro was so great in this show like he he has this fantastic monologue in the sixth episode kin where he's talking with tommy you know this is the first time he's seeing him in in years and he has this fantastic monologue of you know i wake up in the night from dreams and I don't know what I've lost, but I know I've lost. This is a man who's dealt with 20 years of failure. He lost his daughter in the first days of the outbreak. And he's had to deal with so much loss, loss of friends, loss of home, loss of loss of family. And then on top of that, he also loses tests. He cannot stand another failure. He cannot stand the thought of Ellie sacrificing not even really sacrificing herself because it's not a choice she makes it's a choice that's made for her and granted i would have like if this if there was a narrative that i would have written i would have written ellie to have a choice in that moment but joel is doing everything he can to save his daughter it is a very heroic and admirable thing and like i think neil Druckmann and craig mazin said like you know we've asked parents like about that scene like what would you do if this was your child and every single like nine parents out of ten that they said like i would do exactly what joel did to save my child yeah yeah no and 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 i think there's there's also like a, a rational part of it too so and this is kind of what i've had to explain to people i know that have watched it who aren't familiar with the game or the tv show or anything really about the universe but you know, when, when Ellie goes in for that surgery, like it, it's not a guaranteed like win. They're, they're, they're not just going to like scoop her brain out and instantly be able to make the cure. I mean, there's there's a lot of that that's kind of tossed up in the air. I mean, they're, they're, they're really like flipping a coin here. 50-50 shot whether they can use it or not. And so for, from a rational perspective, like if you have a 50% chance of saving the world, but 50% of it not happening and the difference is like people are surviving and people can cope with the infection as it currently stands then, you know, I, I'm not a, a parent, but I, I would probably do the same thing as Joel. You know, I, I like the, the thought of incurring another traumatic and devastating loss would be just too much for me to bear in that moment. Yeah. 
and, and having to deal with the last 20 years of your life just feeling like a failure and not being a not feeling like you're able to protect those around you and joel that's who he is he's a protector and he, he's closed himself off to a lot of feelings of love and admiration for people with the exception of maybe tess and his brother but he can't stand the thought of just letting his another daughter go and yeah, like if i were if i were in joel's position i don't know what i would do i, I surely don't think i would go on a murderous rampage where i kill scores of people but uh, uh, yeah, I'm with Joel. I would do everything I can to make sure that my child survives. So that that, that brings up another good point, actually. Um, and, and this this might be a slight digression, so I apologize. But uh, Joel and Tess, while we're kind of on the subject of relationships between people, uh, I've always inferred from the games that Joel and Tess at one point had a romantic relationship that went sour, and then they just ended up being business partners. Is that kind of your take on it? That was my take. I mean, I I had a feeling that maybe that they were currently, you know, you know, friends with benefits or something, nothing really serious or romantic, just kind of like, hey, we're both alone in this world. We're both attracted to each other. Let's just have a moment where we're not dealing with the massive just poop, which that is our surroundings. <laughs> um, but it's more contextualized in the show. I mean, we see Tess kind of crawling, uh, crawling the bed with Joel and share a cuddle. And even in the game, like there's a there's a moment. You know, fa- uh, fast forward 20 years later, Joel is, you know, grabbing Tess's face and cleaning her up after a fight. And that that great moment where he te- she tells him to leave. And so I know there's enough here for you to feel some sort of obligation to me. So I don't think that they were currently in a romantic relationship, but I'm, I'm right with you. I think they did have one at some point or it's just turned into a friends with benefits type of deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and and I, I think that's one of the parts that I kind of liked about the show that was a little different than the game. Uh, the game does ex- like have a little bit of kind of interaction between Tess and Joel and kind of their their quasi relationship they're in. But I think that's something that cinema can probably do a little bit better because you have like the Uncanny Valley in video games, which for those of you that don't know, that's where like the characters look almost so real that they look fake. And uh, Last of Us for both the time when it came out on PS3 and the time it came out on PS4 and then again on PS5. We got a Skyrim situation here, folks. <laughs> uh, then, uh, you know, the graphics kept getting so much better that, yeah, like the game is probably one of the best looking games I've ever seen. But it, it almost looks too good, if that makes sense. Uh, and so you really get kind of the nuance of the emotional play between Joel and Tess when you're watching the show just because they're human actors with human emotions and you know, their eyes kind of wiggling around in their head. They're you know trembling a little bit when they talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the personification of Joel and Tess really, I think, as a difference between the game and then the, the show, it really kind of helped to embellish that relationship a little more. So you do get that feeling like... You know, maybe they were lovers at one point in time and maybe that kind of flipped away and, and now they're kind of in this situation where they're, you know, business partners, but also maybe friends with benefits. Something. All I know is that their relationship was definitely clarified for the show. And I mean, Tess is just I don't want to say she's just a number of side characters because all the, the side characters are essential to moving the narrative forward. And they're so memorable and. Like for me, like if I were to get like an extra episode or extra screen time about any any of the side characters, I would have wanted it to be Tess. Oh, 100 percent agreed. 
because I heard there was a they actually wrote a prologue for one of the episodes where it was going to show Tess like in the early days of the outbreak and like she had a uh, she had a child and she had a husband, but they got infected and she locked them in the basement of her home and just ran away with them pounding on the door trying to get out. That is a scene I would have loved to have seen in the show. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's that's insider baseball that I did not know. Yeah, no, I, I, so, so aside from expounding on Tess, I, I think the other character I would have liked to have seen a backstory on that I wouldn't have cared for in the video game is Henry. Uh, the whole situation with Henry betraying Kathleen's brother, who's like the leader of this sadistic kind of survivor group in Kansas City, uh, and that whole background surrounding him like basically being high up in this organization, like on par with Kathleen, and then turning his back on everyone in order to help get his brother his medicine that he needed. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that in a little more help understand how they got to where they are, maybe some kind of background into, you know, when uh, Sam gets leukemia and then how that kind of changes the whole situation and Henry's outlook on life and where his allegiances lie. And Lamar Johnson is fantastic in his episodes as Henry and Kevon Woodward. Like I, that kid is amazing. That kid is going to do fantastic things in his career. I hope he does more adorable kid too like <laughs> and, and like super I'm, cute and i and i'm with you like that whole point of like there's certain things that like you don't get in a video game that you get in a show like you don't you don't feel it like for me i don't get emotional playing video games that much i got emotional in this show so many times oh yeah well i mean I'm, you could put anything on the tv and i'd probably cry at it but um, you know, yeah. This you put thing. Ted Lasso on, I'll cry at Ted Lasso. <laughs> well, Ted Lasso is a whole different conversation. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, that that but that moment though, where Sam is infected, tries to kill Ellie, and Henry is forced to kill Sam. It is in a show that is full of gut wrenching moments. For me, anyway, that moment just hurts so much. Oh yeah, I mean, I. I so Bill and Frank was was heartbreaking, but in a sweet kind of way. Uh, you know, Tess dying is tragic and and a little bit emotional, but it's not necessarily something that really like punches you too hard. But yeah, when 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 Henry has to shoot Sam because he's attacking Ellie, uh, it's just like uh, like I can't even imagine that kind of a situation. That's like killing your 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 kid or something like that. I mean, like because Henry's age in the show is obviously much greater than Sam, so it's basically like he is the father figure now for Sam. Mm-hmm. And so you're basically having to kill your child and the amount of courage and fortitude that it probably took for him in that moment in the span of what, like maybe five seconds that he has to come up with that decision. You know, he's got to live with it for the rest of his life. So watching that scene, uh, arguably one of the more emotional moments in the entire series for me, not my most emotional moment, but I'm I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later. There's just so many moments that they they changed. I mean, not so many, but it, it, they expanded upon, and it feel and the show is better for it. The overall story that they're trying to tell, both in the game and in the show, it just works so much more. Yeah, it's 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 way more cohesive, and and I I think uh, to from your little list here that we've been looking at, uh, one of the things that I, I liked the most that they changed, and it's really small, and it, it kind of like threw me off when we first started watching it. Uh, was the change of the fungal infection from just like a spore into like a hive mind network. Mm. And so in the game, like, you know, in theory, you can get infected at any point in time. Like all there has to be is just spores in the air. You breathe them in, you're done. Uh, but having it be this kind of hive mind infection, all the things like roots underground, think of like a tree that everything's all interconnected with each other. 
uh, I think made more sense for the show because it always had this like looming sense of dread. In the game, you always know that you're going to be battling hundreds of zombies or whatever over the course of the game. Uh, but in the show, they need to add something to really kind of raise the stakes. So that like it kind of gives you, the viewer, the idea that like, okay, like these people are in danger 24-7. They're, they're, they're never on a break. And I think by having that kind of hive mind structure to the fungal infection really helped to ground everything. And it also made it pretty cool because as soon as you, you scare one of them, all of them are going to come running. So like that, that whole aspect of it just really added tension to every time they encountered a zombie, knowing that like, okay, like, like I was saying before in the video game, there's a section where you're fighting like eight or nine zombies or whatever, probably not so practical to do on a T on a small TV set. So when they fight one, you know, like it's, it's serious because that one can somehow alert the entire hive mind if, if it somehow works out that way. Yeah. And it, it will, and it's based in real life. Like it is actually how funguses work. Like if you, like when you see like fungus grow, it's like a ripple effect. It's not just one section of it that grows. It'll grow out in multiple different directions and it evolves over time. And like, yeah, that's something that I, I praise the, the writers and creators for doing is showing how this inf infection came to be. And, you know, having just come out of, you know, COVID and, you know, the, all of that for the last, you know, several years, I think people learned a lot. I mean, Granted, it depends on where your quote unquote research was coming from, but I think people learn a lot about how infections like this behave and like everything that they're saying in the show is true. Like there is no you know, vaccine for fungal infections. There is no way of preventing this. Funguses do evolve much more rapidly than any other organism on this planet. And the conditions are just right with the advent of climate change and super super infections and super bugs that exist like something like this is going to happen at some point <laughs> I, I, love and I don't that. mean to, i don't mean to press the alarm but like this is like this is true what they're showing like granted it's going to take you know probably several hundred thousand years for something like this to be capable of happening but it could happen Oh, absolutely. There, there's science behind, uh, you know, like it's not cordyceps specifically, but there's some fungal infection that infects like ants in the Amazon and it basically like takes over their brain and grows out like a stalk of fungus on their head. Oh, it is cordyceps. Is, is, is that cordyceps? It is cordyceps. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's, it's, they call it the zombie parasite. There's actually samples of it at the field museum. But the same thing. They have, you know, fungal stalks growing through an ant's head. It's, and it behaves the same way. But it, the thing with the, the cordyceps is there's a different strain for every type of insect. So you have one that only affects ants. You have one that only affects beetles caterpillars so on and so forth but the objective the objective is the same it infects the host the host gets in somewhere where it can infect more and infects more and the fungus spreads and it's the same thing it is, and it's terrifying because you don't see you don't see that in the game and it's it explained in the show you know you know tainted flower and i love the little like tidbits you see the neighbors you know eating biscuits it's like when well how come joel and sarah aren't infected it's like because they ran out of pancake mix yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so, yeah, you heard it here first, folks. Cordyceps is real and this is a real thing that could happen. Uh, but I, I, on the same token, I, I believe the science behind it is that cordyceps doesn't bother humans, at least at this point in time. Not yet. No. And so and so the, actually the show brilliantly brings that up in like the first couple of episodes with their intros where basically there's like some scientist. It's, it's like in India or something, right? It, so the very first uh, scene of the show is like this talk show where they have a bunch of epidemiologists on to kind of explain the nature of fun of bacterial infections and what we're doing to combat that. And then, you know, the the one British guy played by John Hanna, 
is all like, well, all it takes is for the you know the 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 temperature to rise, and there's there's no vaccine for for fungal infections, so we're all going to die if if we don't do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what was the one on the second? I think it was the second episode. Yeah, I think that was in uh, Jakarta. Jakarta, yeah, yeah. So so that that part where you know basically like same concept. They're like they're talking about well, well cordyceps. I might be misrepresenting this, so pull me back if I'm starting to go down too deep of a rabbit hole. But uh, but at one point, I think the doctor is, is like they, they call in this specialty doctor for Jakarta and then he's kind of analyzing the dead and he's like, well, wait, like this isn't supposed to like infect humans. And they're like, well, it did. And then they're like, well, how many other people were they exposed to? And then the, the apparently the patient zero, let's call it, quote unquote, was in like a, some kind of factory with like hundreds of other people. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it, it's turtles all the way down from there. But I, I like how they kind of explain that and give some actual scientific evidence to help support that like yes this is possible should the conditions change and cordyceps decides that it actually wants to infect us in the way that it intends to affect everything else well it's funny like how nobody was paying attention to this when the game came out but as soon as hbo does a show everybody's paying attention now to fungal infections (laughs) like uh there's now instant like i don't know if these were happening before and just weren't being reported but now like there's fungal infections that like that people are getting and being treated for that are now like being reported like there was some i think there was a um a naturalist in uh, india who was actually just treated for a fungal infection so so these are these are happening like they're they're on either they're on the rise or they were already happening to begin with and just weren't reported i think it was uh was it Neil Druckmann that went out on Twitter or something? And he's like, please stop sending me mushrooms. Because like, <laughs> people were like, t- t- they were taking pictures and sending him like samples of like cordyceps that they found in the wild. He's like, I don't want this anymore. Like, please stop sending this to me. There's a, there's a TikTok guy. If I, I forget the name of like the people who study fungus, but like he is so cool. He'll go out into the woods and he'll like tell you like, oh, this, this fungus is poisonous. This one you can actually eat. And like people have just been bombarding him with questions about cordyceps. It's so fun to watch him go on. Like you can actually do this and like you can actually eat cordyceps. Like you have to cook it and prepare it. But like I've seen people eat, you know, cordyceps mushrooms. Yeah. I mean, again, folks, you heard it here first. Uh, this is totally possible. I am not telling anybody to go out and do this. Please make sure if you eat any mushrooms, please make sure that they are edible. You know, listen to the advice of professionals. I'm just a moron hosting a podcast, okay? And watch out for the ones that are of the magic variety. All I know is don't <laughs> eat yellow snow, okay? <laughs> but but let's talk about the infected. So we see a whole bunch of infected in this show. We see the base four and the runners move very quickly, easy to swarm, very powerful, just punch and scream and all that. Then we've got clickers, the more terrifying variety who are blind have big mushrooms growing out through their brain hunt only by sound and just can kill you instantly basically if you run into one of those you're basically dead in this world and then you have the ultra rare bloater that only shows up one time in this season i was a little disappointed it was just once and it is just next to impossible to kill now in the game because it's a game you have to progress somehow and the game Makes it easy. I don't want to say easy. You, it's still you have to have some. There's a challenge and there's some skill, but you could kill a bloater in the game by just chucking a couple of co- Molotov cocktails at it and it goes down. Whereas I feel I got the sense in the in the show that the infected are basically unkillable, with the exception of runners. And I'm worried that that's going to impact like how we're going to see the infected in future seasons. Yeah, they they definitely seem more impervious to damage. Um... You know, I, I think they so they 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 kill those two clickers 
when when they're in the museum in Boston. So they, they at least know like that you have some semblance of an idea that they can be defeated. But yeah, like overall, I, I, so that section of the game when, when you're in that museum in Boston and that's kind of your, I, I think that's arguably your first fight with a clicker at that point. You're, you're, it's at the same exact moment, I want to say, as the show, if I remember correctly. It was, uh, yeah, it's the first moment in the show where we see the clickers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the game, like they, they make it kind of easy to, to kill the infected. Really like the hard enemies in the game are the humans, arguably. Uh, the, the infected are kind of predictable. You can stealth kill uh, like your way around and so forth. Yeah, but, you can distract them with a bottle and move around them. But yeah, the, the show really made them more deadly and, and more versatile and more resilient to damage. And I, I think that's great because in the game, they kind of have to be a little bit squishy because you're fighting so many of them. And that's kind of the core gameplay loop is like kill zombies, kill humans, explore, repeat. Uh, but so in the show, making them a little more menacing and invulnerable in that sense, I think was really important to kind of, again, attach on to that fear of always being in danger. So, you know, they have the hive mind so they can all kind of alert all the other runners in an area, quote unquote, and they can all come running like we see at the end of the Fedra episode. Uh, or, but, but then also like when they do get in these one-on-one fights, like this is a fight to the death. This is not just, you know, press X to win. Yeah, I was... Because there's a there's a great section in uh, the second game where you're playing as Abby and you're in the ho- basement of the hospital and you see this monstrous looking thing. They call it the Rat King in the game, and I'm it's a <laughs> amazing section in the game, but I'm so worried that it's not going to be in a future season because it, no one's going to be able to kill it. You're going to have to drop a bomb on it just to hurt it. Yeah, that's that, that's a good point. Uh, you know, I I wonder how they're going to handle the more variety and in infected in the second game. Or at least the, um, you know, in, in, in the second game, from the first game to the second game, obviously, uh, artificial intelligence improves for kind of your your enemies that you're fighting. Uh, so certainly in this, from game two to game one, the enemies got more aggressive, they were smarter, and they were more tough to kill just because of advancements in technology. But there is kind of some uh, differentiation, you know, new zombie types, well, not zombies, apologies, but, uh, you know, th- there are different types of infected that, that you get to kind of see, and I'm not really sure how they're going to do it. I think they're probably just going to keep it kind of the way it is now. Maybe throw in some more bloaters, keep the clickers as the primary threat, and then runners are just kind of this like background uh, looming doom should you ever awaken the hive mind. I think the one variety that they're going to keep for future seasons is the stalker. Yeah, we saw it in some sections of the show where you know somebody was infected, but they decided to just give up. They died, and they grew into the wall. And some didn't, though. Like it would, you have to walk past, but it would pop out of the wall and start coming at you. Like it's basically a runner that can hide or that can hide and, you know, just stay attached to the walls. There's several sections of the game where you encounter stalkers and you are just so terrified because they could pop out of the wall at any moment. They're they're able to hide around corners and sneak up on you. They don't make a ton of noise. So they're, they hunt like clickers and move like runners. And that's terrifying. (laughs) But then there's also shamblers that can basically bloaters that don't get to full form, I guess, and just spout acid, just lay down and and shoot acid up. (laughs) But I would like to see if there is a second, when there is a second season, I want to see a character kill a bloater. Yeah. Like it's, you know, because you see it happen so often in the game. There's a flashback in part two where Joel kills one or he grabs a machete and just chops it up. So you can't kill them. I think you just have to be tenacious. It could be a whole action set piece where Ellie has to kill a bloater. Joel has to kill one. Abby has to kill one. But that is something I would love 
to see for a future in the future seasons. Yeah, and I, I think there's a way that they can navigate that. You know, um, you know, albeit like you said, they're kind of making the infected a little bit impervious right now. But uh, you know, there's certainly a set piece that could be had where a, you know they can make up some kind of scene or arena where they're fighting or whatnot. It doesn't necessarily have to tie directly into the game, but yeah, like have some kind of set piece where a group is fighting or, or a couple of people are fighting a bloater, and it just turns into this drawn out battle scene and. You know, find some creative way to kill it, you know, like throw a gas canister at it or something to blow it up. Something to make it exciting because like the, the, the second game definitely ramps up the action compared to the first game. So that's hopefully we get something more like that in, in the second season. Absolutely. Um, but let's, uh, you know, let's talk about what many people were kind of calling the filler episodes. Uh, long, long time, which all, a.k.a. The Last of Up. And then also left behind um the the episode based off the dlc from the game where it shows how ellie got infected sneaking out from the orphanage and everything like that i heard a lot of talk from people just calling them filler episodes mainly it was like conservative pundits who were just like don't know what they're talking about basically and like oh like why why do they have to be gay why does she have to be a lesbian it's like just because there's an apocalypse that happened doesn't mean people stop being gay okay (laughs) (laughs) first of all and second of all like these are very important parts of the story in my opinion so to call these like filler episodes or throwaway episodes it seems disrespectful to the overall narrative arc of the story. Well, I, I completely agree. And, and arguably, those are my two favorite episodes, uh, with maybe the, the Henry and Sam episode kind of s- trying to sneak its way into that, that category. Uh, you know, for the longest time, I, I never played Left Behind, uh, up until pretty much when I think the remake came out on PS5 it was the first time I ever played Left Behind. I do remember you saying that. I kept telling you to play it. <laughs> so so watching the, the show, like especially with it being so fresh in my mind, was very poignant for me. Uh, I love the relationship that, you know, Riley and Ellie have together. And I think kind of showing that bond that they had uh, not only instills Ellie's sense of loss because, you know, now she's lost her, be- her her best friend and for what you can assume is also her lover. Uh, so, you know, there's there's pieces of that that help define who Ellie is as a character and helps to kind of cement uh, her emotional state for both the rest of the show as well as for the next season. So season two and, and three, because they're probably going to break it in half, right? Uh, so I, I thought Left Behind was fantastic. And then I, like, I don't even know where to start with, with Bill and Frank. <laughs> it's such a great... It's such a great episode, and, and and left behind when you view it from uh, through the context of the entire season. The very next episode is Ellie being by herself and learning how to survive and taking on David and his group. And to me, like the seventh and eighth episodes are the best representation of everything that made the game so great. You have all of the gameplay elements from Joel and Ellie. You have all the story elements, the characters the danger that is being a part of this world and trying to hold on as like child in this world, trying to hold on to whatever innocence is there, whatever fun is there and then having it yanked away from you in the most horrible of fashions. And, and in the eighth episode, I, my favorite moment from the first game is when Joel is interrogating those two jerks to find out where, where the Ellie is taken. (laughs) And, you know, he, you know, stabs the guy in the knee and tortures him and is like hey why'd you kill him he told you what you wanted to know i'm not telling you anything and joel just looks at him and goes that's all right i believe him and just <laughs> burks that guy i love that moment because for me that is the turning point of joel 
as Ellie's surrogate father. He, it goes to show that he will go to no lengths. He will go to, excuse me, he will go to every length imaginable to rescue Ellie, even if it means brutally torturing and killing two people just to know a general idea of where she is. Those two episodes, like, I will fight whoever says the Left Behind episode is filler. It's not. It perfectly encapsulates that in the eighth episode, sum up everything people love about the game. Oh, completely agreed. Like, it, the, the the Left Behind episode is essential, you know, kind of like what I was saying before, to understand Ellie and, and her growth and her arc, especially after playing both games back to back. Like, you know, that, that that's that's certainly a situation where it helps give you context of who Ellie is and how she's a survivor. And then, again, it's essential to show that you know, she went from this very vulnerable place to then in episode eight, just being completely on her own. You know, she's she's basically back to where she was at the end of episode seven, which I think is why they put those two back to back like that. So mm-hmm. they, they show her being at the lowest state that she's ever been at that point in time in her life. And, and, you know, she's alone. She's helpless. She can't go back to everyone. She's she's bit. She thinks that, you know, she's infected. Yeah, they're going to kill her if she goes back. Yeah. So and then it jumps into episode eight and immediately she's in the same situation. She's alone. She's abandoned. She really has to fend for herself, and, and it really kind of sets that up very perfectly. So I think it's essential to have those two back to back. But uh, you know, Bill and Frank, I think, is a little bit different because you could almost rip that out and make that its its own entire story. Oh, if there was a two hour movie that was just Bill and Frank, I would pay all the tickets to watch that. Yeah, I mean, and and, and so like my my girlfriend, uh, not playing much in, in the way of video games and having never seen The Last of Us. Uh, that was her favorite episode, so much so that I actually got her a shirt that has Bill and Frank on it. Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, but, but either way, uh, you know, she said she would have watched an entire season of just that, of their relationship. And and so while, like, I, I understand when some people say, like, well, it didn't really add to much, but really the Bill and Frank episode, I feel like was fan service to people that played the game. Yeah. It was, peop- it was for people who loved the character of Bill, wanted to know more about Frank, and... Also, too, just needed maybe a bit of a break from just the awfulness that was what we've just seen in the first two episodes. Like, okay, well, like we saw Sarah get killed. We saw them sneaking off into the city to fight off infected test dies at the end of the second episode. Maybe we just needed a break from it to kind of show like, hey, there was love and relationships and safety that flourished in this world. Like that was possible. And it was... It's heartwarming to see it's another moment where like if you're not emotional at seeing, you know, uh, Bill's truck drive away through the window of what we presume is, you know, the the room where Bill and Frank died in like this is uh, you may be devoid of a soul. <laughs> there's again, there's so many moments in that show that just like hit you like the moment where in the eighth episode where Joel finds Ellie, hugs her and calls her baby girl like I I just fall apart in that moment. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and, and so for, for all the haters out there on the Bill and Frank episode, because there's a lot of people, at least online, that hate on it because of the uh, what they deem as excessive gayness, uh, that is probably like one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever seen on film or screen or whatever you want to call it. I mean, they're, it's, like, 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 it's not like you're watching uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy or something like that. Like they're, they're not like being effeminate or doing anything kind of ostentatiously. They're just two men that are in a situation where they have to survive together and they grow to love each other. And I think that's actually where like the, the whole gay argument for it is kind of invalid because like 
in that kind of an environment, like you're trapped, you're alone. Most of these people are alone for so long. Your only other piece of human contact might be someone of the same gender. And when you're so emotionally strained in those kind of situations, I can only imagine it's very easy to fall in love with anyone that you come across, you know, uh, whether they're a man or a woman, regardless. So I, I think that the how they meet and then how their love kind of blossoms is is all, you know, very well done. It's not like they just force it like Bill finds Frank and then, oh, we're lovers now. <laughs> so, no, it's very natural. And like, and watching it, it's, and if you're like single or alone, like that's what you want out of this life. You want someone to share your life with. So whether it's, you know, a, you know, a heterosexual couple, homosexual, whatever, like you should be happy to see somebody in a fictional world who finds their person in the most horrible of circumstances. What was the uh, the line uh, right right before they're they're both about to to take the big sleep? Oh, uh, I think it was like I never cared about anything, or um, I never wanted to protect anything before I met you. Yeah, yeah, something so, along those lines. I don't remember exactly. It, it was some like beautiful quote. It, it was it was just like it was so emotional, and it really hit home that like Bill cares for Frank that much. And so I, I love that line, and it's so much so that it's on the shirt that I got for Haley. So, uh, yeah, it's it's like I, I I never cared about anything until I met you or something along those lines. But it was it was gorgeous, and especially said in that moment, uh, the, the context surrounding it just makes it even more kind of emotional and hard hitting. Uh, I I shed a little bit of a tear at the end of that episode. I'll I'll say that much. Oh yeah, like I wasn't I was never afraid until you showed up. That's it. That yeah. is yeah, it's a beautiful line. If anybody's got a problem with the Bill and Frank episode, like go pound sand. All right. You can come and fight me if you want. <laughs> Corwin and I will team up. <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, what what we could want or what we could see in season two. Obviously, they haven't announced anything just yet in terms of casting. I know they're going to film. Um, they're going to film also in uh, in Canada because that's where the first season was filmed. Um, there's a lot of rumors swirling about of who they're going to cast as Abby. Um, I'm not going to get into casting because again, nothing's announced. We don't know yet. Um, are there any moments? I mean, obviously we're going to see Joel being killed. That's going to translate into a future season. Are there any moments from the second game or things that, you know, maybe we didn't get in the first game that you want to see translate to a future season? Yeah. I, I you know, Abby casting is going to be very important. So I will say that much. I, I haven't looked up on, on who they're thinking of potentially casting or what the rumor mill is, but uh, I would like to see more violence in the next season. Cause I think uh, we've talked about this before that like really the, the moral of the second game is uh, what lengths people will go in terms of violent acts that they'll commit in order to satisfy their lust for revenge. And so I think having more combat, whether it's people on people or people versus infected or whatnot, I think having more combat in that is, is going to be essential just to help get that point across that, you know, people will go to these abhorrent lengths in order to make sure they can satisfy this lust for revenge that they have. Uh, as to like key mark items, I, I think they're going to have to do... Uh, Owen and Abby's relationship properly. Yep. So I fully expect an entire episode to come out that's going to be solely centered on Abby and Owen's kind of blossoming romance and then how that kind of slowly fizzles out as he gets, you know, shacked up with Mel. Uh, but yeah, so obviously Joel's death, that's going to have a, a primary importance. Uh, 
I feel like we're going to need a lot of, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, in tandem with something like combat, but, you know, the second game does a very good job at giving you a little more freedom to roam around and explore. And I think that's part of what makes the second game so special is that it kind of opens the doors a little bit for you where everything was extremely linear in the first game. Not that that's a bad thing. So having those doors open really kind of understands the scale and scope of what you're going through as Ellie during those different time like during those different explorations or incursions or whatever uh, and so I, I think having some more you know maybe it's like just filler shots of Ellie kind of like walking around exploring buildings you know like throw let's call it 30 minutes worth of footage like that into a span of like two or three episodes so you just kind of intersperse these options showing her exploring to kind of set the pace and to set the tone of what's happening um, obviously there's going to be the part with Dina when uh, Abby and Lev Yes. Yeah, Lev. I, I, I always want to call it Len. Uh, and it isn't it, technically. So I, I am saying that correctly. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, when, when they show up and then obviously, you know, like the shoot uh, Dina with an arrow, you think she's mortally wounded. You think she's mortally wounded. Uh, I really want them to do that scene where Ellie has the daydream of having the farmhouse with Dina and the baby. Mm. I want them to find a way to, to fit that in because that's a, a very beautiful moment in the game. And it really kind of shows you Ellie's kind of longing and dreams. And then, uh, obviously, my favorite part of the game, the combat sequence through Southern California. I really think they need to do something like that to lead up to the final confrontation between Ellie and Abby. Yeah, there's a there's a line in the first game that made its way into the show where Joel is talking with Ellie and he looks at her and goes, you have no idea what loss is. And I think if the second season or the third season or whatever doesn't end on Ellie coming home to that farmhouse like you're talking about and finding it empty like it is going to be a massive disservice ellie ellie knows what it's like to lose people she doesn't know what it's like to lose hope and there has to be some type of explore uh exploration in that to show her like hey you've lost a person here's what it's like to lose basically your life your home your family this whole life that you've wanted this idyllic life is just ripped away from you now what are you going to do and Nobody knows what they're going to do because I think it's going to be a Game of Thrones type of situation where they're going to do but too many shows that outpace the release of the games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and so I I have some thoughts about how we think that the uh, the, the third game is going to end because they're they're going to have to make a third game at some point. They have to close the arc out. But uh, more importantly, I wanted to ask you, where do you think? So that the, the rumor people is that uh, that they're going to turn the the second game into two seasons. So. I honestly have no idea where they would cut the second game in half to basically turn it into a second season and a third season. I think you've got to break it down into like season 2A and 2B. You've got to tell Abby's story because the second game does not work without Abby. Like it, the whole game does not work if you don't at least identify and sympathize with Abby. You have to set something like that up. Either do Abby's section as 2B and do Ellie's portion of the game with the flashbacks and the winding narrative as 2A. There has to be a way to do that. Um, and But this is why I'm not paid money by HBO to figure that out. That's Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin's problem to figure out. Because uh, it is a, I mean, on the surface, like if you're trying to explain the narrative to people and like, oh, it's set five years after the first game, but it then also flashes back three years and then two years. And then there's Abby's portion of the game where it also flashes back. So it's a very twisty, confusing narrative. And you switch protagonists, like I would say three quarters of the way through the game. 
Yeah, yeah. If, if not even earlier than that, it might have been about 50% yeah. of the game. But So I would argue, yes, like Ellie's portion of the game, her narrative has to be like 2A, and then where they meet is where it ends, and then Abby's portion is 2B, and then maybe like have a couple of episodes after that where it explains like, you know, what happened after they left that theater and things were kind of like, hey, I don't ever want to see you again. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I know leading into the second game, <clears throat> After it kind of came out and everyone kind of figured out that, like, it's a Metal Gear Solid 2 situation. Uh, for those of you that don't know what that reference is, in Metal Gear Solid 2, <clears throat> they basically hype you up with this awesome mission where you're Solid Snake and you're on a tanker and you're trying to stop Metal Gear Rex or whatever it is at that time. I forgot. And then basically that that whole sequence is only maybe two or three hours. And then the other, like, 15 hours of that game, you're playing as a completely different character. You're playing as Raiden. So, um Last of Us 2 kind of did the same thing. So they, they kind of baited you in thinking you're going to play as Ellie. And then they kind of switched it up and threw in Abby. And, and you're exactly correct. They have to do service to Abby because Abby's portion of, of the game and then now of the overarching story or the universe of The Last of Us is completely essential to, to getting the story to where it is by the end of game two. My only casting note, if they're going to do this, since they have a penchant for uh, retaining actors who played their characters in the, or at least bringing back actors from the game. Je the actor Jeffrey Wright played Jim Gordon in the Batman from 2022. He played Isaac in Last of Us Part Two, the leader of the WLF, the, the the militia movement that Abby is part of. If they don't bring him back to play Isaac for the second season, I may be very upset. I love Jeffrey Wright. He's one of my favorite actors. I thought he was great in the game. I think it would be a great avenue for him to come back, expand on his story, give the WLF a little more backstory, because supposedly like the WLF was founded with Isaac and like four other people and Isaac is somehow the only one left. So that might be an interesting avenue to explore. Give Isaac some room to grow. If you're going to give, give Isaac the treatment you gave to Bill and Frank. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> who, who would you think would play uh, Abby? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I know I see Florence Pugh's name out there a lot and she's a fantastic actress, but I don't think she's right for this role. You, you have to, Abby is somebody who is physically imposing. Yeah. Like, Ellie is very spindly. She's able to sneak around. She's very crafty. But Abby is very much, she has the finesse of Ellie with the brute strength of Joel. And you have to find somebody that's able to match that intensity, physicality, and also has to be a damn good actress. Yeah, I have, I have a really bad hot take on it. But the first person I thought of when, when they said they were going to make season two was Gina Carano. But she kind of shot herself in the foot after all of her bad comments. Yeah... They didn't fire you for being conservative. They fired you for having crappy opinions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's she's probably not the caliber of actress that would need to be able to play Abby, but physically, like, I, I think she kind of fits the bill. I don't know if, like, a former UFC fighter is necessary. I know people are also throwing out, like, Ronda Rousey's name. It's like, she's too old. Like, Abby is a... Abby's somebody who's in her early 20s. Ronda Rousey's probably, like... like my age now. <laughs> like, approaching her mid-30s. Like, probably is going to take a little convincing to tell people like hey i'm in my early 20s mm, i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> how do you do fellow kids <laughs> <laughs> now we got a steve buscemi situation going on here <laughs> so obviously like we talked about the the show was a major sensation for hbo a second season was greenlit immediately like we've been talking about sales of the game shot up exponentially Naughty Dog, once again, rolling in the dough, like Corwin was saying. Third game, likely on the rise. Nobody knows when. Naughty Dog is very tight-lipped about the development of their IP. Um, there's been rumors swirling for years about 
what is going to happen. You know, just like in the briefest of overviews, what do you, if there is a third game, and I hope to God there is, what do you want to have happen in the third game? Yeah, so actually I had a uh, drunken brainstorming session with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago in between playing my new PlayStation VR headset about this. And we have the perfect way to end the series. So whatever they have to do in order to lead up to the end of the game is fine. So make Ellie go on this you know, revenge quest to find Abby or whatnot. She changes her mind. She wants to go back and kill her. But I think the only way to end it in, an, in a naughty dog-ish disturbing way, as pretty much all of the games have ended up until this point, is they, they need to realize that one, uh, Ellie's uh, immunity to the to the infection uh, is not something that can be harvested and used anymore. So like you can't use it as medicine, but all of her offspring are immune. And so they turn Ellie into like a baby farm to repopulate the earth. Oh, that's dark. That's like <laughs> finding out babies are just batteries in the matrix dark. <laughs> so we, we think that that's like probably I, I won't swear, but the, the most effed up way that we think that Neil Druckmann can come up with a way to basically solve the problem in the most horrible way possible. Yeah, the games never end on a hopeful note. So, yeah, that's something to keep an eye out for. But I think they, they I think this may be a situation where they just do three games and be done with it. You know, not have an Uncharted type of situation. They're going to find a way to wrap up the narrative. And again, it's this isn't also is not going to be a show that's going to stretch on for years like Game of Thrones. There's, there's going to be three or four seasons and then they're going to be done with it. So this is a very short lived kind of thing. Enjoy it while it lasts and it, play the game when it comes out, too. It's going to be an amazing game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything Naughty Dog does is golden. I, I think right now they're working on a sci fi project. It's like an unannounced, unreleased sci fi project, I want to say. I think Druckmann, because Druckmann's been teasing an announcement for months at the time we're recording here in April 2023, that like, oh, I'm announcing new game very soon. And if, if he can do whatever he wants, if he wants to do a science fiction project that's going to come out you know, in 2024, 2025, sure. But there's also got to be something. He's got to give us something about The Last of Us Part 3. Either that it's confirmed to be in development, they can't announce anything just yet, but just tell people that it's in development. Don't play this game where you're going to bait and switch people. Like, just tell us it's in development or not, Neil. <laughs> That's all we want to know, man. Well, they're, they're going to have the, uh, I, I, well, E3 is canceled this year. Rest in peace. Uh, but It's never coming back. Yeah, what, what, whatever they end up doing instead of that, I, I think this year we're going to learn about the Last of Us multiplayer game that's coming out. Factions, I think yes. it's called. So I know, Chris, you're not a huge multiplayer gamer. Nope. I am a avid multiplayer gamer, so I'm very excited for it. And I heard from, I think it was part one, that the multiplayer, there was multiplayer in part one on PS3. So I think in, yeah, I think it was actually called Factions when it originally came out. I don't know what it's going to be called for this iteration. I know it's, I know they're working on it, uh, but I think a title is still to be released just yet. Yeah, so so whatever that game is, it's probably going to be good, and they're probably going to reveal something about that this year. But uh, if I had to guess, I would say Last of Us 3 is probably like six or seven years off. I, I, I want to say that the next thing they're going to do is either going to be this original IP or they're going to come back with more Uncharted, which I'm also fine with. So while I love Last of Us for its like deep and dark and kind of depressing uh, cry your eyes to sleep kind of motifs and everything that it goes through, I equally like Uncharted on the other side for being this like rompy, campy, like Indiana Jones action movie that you get to play as, which also has a fairly good story to it. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely agree. Either way, Naughty Dog, just tell us when we can expect part three. That's all we want, Neil. Help us out. I, I will take the full week off that it comes out. Mark my words. <laughs> so now that we've kind of talked about The Last of Us game and show, let's get into the fun part. Let's rate. 
the show and using our unique scale on the force fed sci-fi podcast of would it watch would watch would own because this is getting a home media release and would host a viewing party dan corwin what do you give to the first season of the last of us uh well i, I think it's obvious would host a viewing party because i did host a viewing party or attended a viewing party for it uh, arguably some some of the best tv i've seen in a long time uh Excellent casting, excellent art direction, excellent sound. I mean, I really can't complain about pretty much anything that came out of it. Uh, So easily one of the best things I've seen on TV in in the last several years. Yeah, I agree. Everything you said. For me, it's Woodhouse Viewing Party. We actually had several viewing parties at our home. You and your lovely girlfriend came over, and I'm sure my my wife and her commiserated about, what did we just watch? Whereas you and I were just geeking out about whatever we saw. Uh, I think this is, hands down, the best video game adaptation that's ever been made. And in an era where we've seen some pretty nasty ones, it's nice to see one it's like oh my gosh this is what happens when you actually have respect and love for the source material and aren't just concerned about making a cash cow this is what video game adaptation should be and this is what i hope they are going forward and even though i am as familiar with the character beats as anybody else who's played the game this still profoundly affected me i love the performance the attention to detail the sound, the music. We didn't even talk about the music. The original composer from the game came back for the show. It's incredible to see how much care and attention is poured into this show. And it shows on screen every single episode, the level of commitment and dedication the crew and the actors have. I cannot speak enough about this show. I can't recommend it enough. Even if you're not a fan of the game, even if you've never played a video game in your life, go Watch The Last of Us. Yeah, the fact that it's a video game means nothing. Yeah. Uh, so like that, this could be a completely independent. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like completely standalone. Yeah, standalone written story. That. Thank you very much. I was losing my tongue there. Uh, it, it could be a completely standalone story, and it would still have the same impact that it had on me. The fact that I have the intrinsic knowledge of the video games that I do and as I'm sure you do as well uh, it just makes it all that better and it really kind of like gets my hopes up for what the future is for video game adaptations agreed well I think that's going to wrap it up for this edition of force fit sci-fi Dan Corwin thank you for sitting down with me to talk last of us happy to be here we'll have to have you back for whenever seasons two or three come out or however they break up Abby's story we'll uh, we'll happily have you back until next time Please check us out on all the socials for uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Twitter for however long that's going to be around. All at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check it out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you stream your audio, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, check out our website, ForcefedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of the social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time.